0: Welcome to JourneyWithJesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The Wisdom of the World and the Foolishness of God. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, January 30th, 2011. The epistle for this week takes me back 30 years to my seminary days in a philosophy class in which our professor required us to memorize 1 Corinthians chapter one, eighteen 18 to 31. The assignment was a clever pastoral reminder. As we were reading Plato, Aristotle, and Kant, the professor was reminding us in the words of Paul that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Our professor would have been the first to affirm the legitimacy, the pure enjoyment, and especially the Christian obligation to study the intellectual riches of the world's cultures whether in art, in architecture, law and literature, or engineering and economics. He himself had actually completed two PhDs by the age of 35, and he rightly warned us of the horrible damage done when anti-intellectualism isolated and insulated the church from culture. In fact, Paul engaged the cultural elite of his day in Athens' marketplace of ideas, Once some Epicurean Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who had ridiculed him as a babbler of strange ideas brought him to the famous Areopagus. There, Paul joined those, we read in Acts 17, who, quote, spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So, truth is truth, whether sacred or secular, and wherever, wherever it's found, In science, poetry, film, or in any other human endeavor, gold from Egypt or the Areopagus is still gold, observed St. Augustine. St. Augustine also observed, though, that however much human reason is a divine gift, revelation is a divine necessity. Antigone by Sophocles provokes us to consider civil disobedience, a Mozart opera touches the depths of human emotion. Photos from the Hubble telescope fill us with cosmic awe at the power of science and the scope of the universe. But however true and beautiful are the fruits of human knowledge, and after we've embraced all that's good and noble in them, there's still a grand narrative that transcends, transforms, and even subverts them all. It's a story that's different in kind and not just in degree. My seminary professor knew what Paul teaches in the epistle for this week, that knowledge is a form of power that tends to stratify humanity into social meritocracies and religious hierarchies. The Corinthians confess their faith in a crucified Christ a story of divine weakness, foolishness, and poverty, but then had transformed it into an occasion for boasting about human power, wisdom, wealth, and influence. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Peter. And in the ultimate attempt at one-upmanship, I follow Christ. And so the Corinthian church had fragmented over boasting, A word which Paul mentions four times in this text, boasting about various claims of superiority. Paul sharply repudiates all forms of social meritocracy and religious hierarchy. The story of a crucified Christ as the power and wisdom of God, which story was so repulsive to Jews and ridiculous to Greeks? Deconstructs our every lust for power. To make his point, Paul draws upon the personal experiences of both the Corinthians who received the gospel and the apostles who preached it to them. In an interesting sociological snapshot of the early church, Paul reminds the Corinthians in chapter 126 Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. People of power and influence rightly understand the gospel as a threat to all that they care about. In Athens, Paul's audience sneered at his message, Acts 17:32). The downward mobility of Christians became one of the main targets of their critics. In about the year 175, Celsus combines socioeconomic snobbery with intellectual elitism to deride the Christians. His passage is worth quoting at length. Listen to the words of Celsus. In some private homes, we find people who work with wool and rags and cobblers, that is, the least cultured and most ignorant kind. Before the head of the household, they dare not utter a word, but as soon as they can take the children aside or some women who are as ignorant as they are, they speak wonders. If you really wish to know the truth, leave your teachers and your father and go with the women and the children to the women's quarters or to the cobbler's shop or to the tannery, and there you will learn the perfect life. It is thus that these Christians find those who will believe them. After reminding the Corinthians of their own origins, Paul appeals to his own apostolic experience in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 9-13. Paul writes, For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like men condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men, we are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. We, You are honored, we are dishonored. To this very hour we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We're homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. The gospel for this week in Matthew chapter 5 reinforces Paul's ironic contrast between the wisdom of the world and the foolishness of God. The Beatitudes of Jesus create a socially subversive counterculture that repudiates pride and power. Jesus welcomes the poor and the peacemakers, not the rich and the violent. His kingdom resonates with the meek, the merciful, and the mournful, not with the mighty. He welcomes those who hunger for justice, not those who lust for power. And so to the way to a life which Jesus calls blessed is not that of human wisdom and power but of divine weakness and foolishness. And now for further reflection what do you think Paul means when he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 20 that the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk but of power? Consider the Christian tradition of holy fools, which is based upon this text from 1 Corinthians. Consider the remark of St. Anthony, the desert hermit who died in the year 356. There will come the time when people will behave like madmen, and if they see anybody who does not behave like they do, they will rebel against him and say... You were mad because he's not like them. And finally, for further reading and reflection, see the book by Stanley Hauerwas and Jean Vanier. The title is called Living Gently in a World of In a Violent World The Prophetic Witness of Weakness University Press two thousand and eight. For books this week, I review Mary Ann Kirkby, the title, I Am Hutterite, Nashville, Thomas Nelson, 2010, 247 pages. In 1528, the Austrian hat maker, Jacob Hutter, founded a radical Christian community based upon the complete sharing of possessions, adult baptism, and nonviolence. For that, he was burned at the stake in the Innsbruck Town Square eight years later. His fledgling followers, although likewise persecuted, survived. And in 1770, many of them migrated to the Ukraine. From there to New York about a hundred years later, and then on to South Dakota, where the first Hutterite community in North America was founded in 1874. At the turn of the century, entire communities of Hutterites moved to Canada, where they were persecuted as conscientious objectors during the war. Mary Ann Kirkby's great-grandfather was among those first Hutterites. And in this bittersweet memoir, she pays tribute to her life growing up in Fairholme, Manitoba, one of the 400 Hutterite communities in Western Canada and the United States. This book, she writes, is my journey to reclaim my past, a past I kept hidden for many years, unwilling to subject myself to ingrained taunts and prejudices. Like all Hutterite communities, in Fairholme, makeup, jewelry, television, radio, newspapers, and photography were all strictly forbidden. Although interestingly, not alcohol. Large families, blunt mannerisms, the Hutteric dialect, plain clothes, famous cookery, sharp humor, and an unrivaled work ethic that produced a thriving community economy were all prized. So too were community segregation by age and gender in both school and church. In conformity, what could be arbitrary and authoritarian leadership And therein lay the crisis of conscience for Kirkby's father, who, like every Hutterite man, had made a vow on his wedding day Should I suffer shipwreck of faith, I will not ask my wife or my children to follow me off the colony. But after too many sharp disagreements with his wife's brother, the leader of Fairholme, that's exactly what he did. He left Fairholme at the age of 46 with his wife and seven children for the outside world. He was penniless. He had never paid a bill, never had a bank account, or held a mortgage. Marianne, the author of the memoir, was 10 years old. Gone was her idyllic childhood, and in its place loomed a world that was equal parts fascinating and frightening. It's a shame that this book ends just when the complex questions of an adult individual's sense of self begin to emerge. After learning so much about Kirkby's childhood growing up, we learn essentially nothing about her adult years and transition to life outside the Hutterites. Still, she's crystal clear about her poignant past. She writes, today I am filled with a deep appreciation of where I have come from. In a better sense of where I'm going. I'd love to read a second volume by Kirkby that explores in greater depth just what she means by that. The title of the book, I Am Hutterite. The author, Mary Ann Kirkby. For film this week, I reviewed Toy Story 3, from the year 2010. Oh no, Andy is going to college. Whatever will become of his boyhood toy collection? There's consternation among the toys. Buzz Lightyear believes that, quote, their mission is done and that a new attic phase awaits them. Mr. Potato Head, Slinky Dog, and others are worried they could be thrown away good old woody voiced by tom hanks says they will never be thrown away and insists that they are family and should stick together they do end up at the sunnyside daycare center and oh what a dark place that is especially i might add the subplot surrounding ken and barbie the end is never in doubt of course But the plot takes many twists and turns, the last of which in the final few minutes had my wife in tears. Toy Story 3 has been on many of the best of 2010 lists. It makes for fantastic family viewing for young and old alike. Toy Story 3. And finally, for poetry this week, we've posted a poem by George Herbert. Herbert lived from 1593 to 1633. The title of this poem is called The Altar. A broken altar, Lord, thy servant rears, made of a heart cemented with tears whose parts are as thy hand did frame, no workman's tool hath touched the same. A heart alone is such a stone, as nothing but thy power doth cut, wherefore each part of my hard heart meets in this frame to praise thy name. That, if I chance to hold my peace, these stones to praise thee may not cease. Oh, let thy blessed sacrifice be mine and sanctify this altar to be thine. The Altar by George Herbert. Thank you for joining us at JourneyWithJesus.net for Sunday, January 30th, 2011. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.